Hello and welcome back to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's podcast, we're discussing the 2009 PBS documentary series, The National Parks, America's Best Idea. As you may have guessed from the title, the series covers the history of the national park system in the United States. This series was directed by Ken Burns, who I think it's fair to say is the most celebrated maker of American history documentaries. The series won two Emmy Awards, including one for Outstanding Nonfiction Series. Our conversation today focuses on the first episode, titled The Scripture of Nature. This episode covers the years 1851 to 1890, which include the establishment of the first national parks, Yosemite in California and Yellowstone, which is mostly in Wyoming. The documentary presents an argument that the national parks are deeply democratic, egalitarian institutions in American life, as the title states, America's Best Idea. Today we scrutinize this narrative, discussing the history of settler colonialism, race, class, and gender in the national parks. We also talk about how people in the past thought about the purpose of parks, and we compare the history of the U.S. national park system to the histories of other systems of parks, such as Canada's national parks and the state and provincial park systems. To discuss all this with me, I'm joined by Dr. Jessica DeWitt. Dr. DeWitt is an expert in environmental history. She holds a PhD from the University of Saskatchewan, where her dissertation focused on park history. She's also the editor-in-chief for the Network in Canadian History and Environment, which is Canada's main scholarly organization for the study of environmental history. We've got a great episode for you today, so let's get into it. All right, I'd like to welcome to the podcast our guest for today, Jessica DeWitt. Jessica, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Full disclosure for the listeners, this is our second attempt <laughs> at recording this podcast. We had some technical difficulties last time, so hopefully this one <laughs> will work out. Anyway, <laughs> please introduce yourself and your area of historical interest to our listeners. Sure. Uh, I'm Jessica DeWitt. I am an environmental historian of the United States and Canada. My area of focus is parks, and for my dissertation, I look specifically at state and provincial parks, which is a step down from the national parks that we'll be focusing on today. Uh, my dissertation was a comparative study of the development of parks over a 100-year period, 1890 to 1990, in Canada and the U.S., and I focus specifically on four different park systems, Idaho and Alberta in the west, and Pennsylvania and Ontario in the east. Other than that, I am the editor-in-chief as well as the social media editor for the Network in Canadian History and Environment, which is the main environmental history organization in Canada. And I also work for myself. I decided to go out on my own and I'm self-employed. I do contract work in research, project management, communications, lots of different things. Wear many different hats. <laughs> well, thanks for making the time to talk to us today. Yeah. I like to tell the little story of how I know people personally, if I do. And the reason I originally met you is that you were a PhD student at the University of Saskatchewan while I was an undergraduate student. And I was working as a research assistant for the professor who, who was your supervisor. Mm -hmm. And we had this lab space. And I remember I would always feel like I was, because uh, there were like office supplies in your room and I would come in and feel like I was intruding on your important work, <laughs> trying to get some highlighters or sticky notes or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You never felt like an intruder. I want, I want to let you know. <laughs> that's, that's kind of you. Thank you. 
So how did you get interested in studying park history? Yeah, so this is a very personal topic for me. I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania, which is a very rural section of Pennsylvania. The town I grew up in, I think in the latest census, has like 25 permanent residents. It's a tourism town. Oh, wow. That's very small. Very small. It was a little bit bigger when I was a kid, maybe 50. <laughs> all of us, All of us young people have left, so the number has gone down. But it was a mile outside of Cook Forest State Park, and my parents owned rental cabins there. And so our livelihood for my entire childhood was connected to the park and the tourism industry around it, which was very vibrant in the 60s through the 90s. And then in the 2000s, it took a really hard hit. And when I was 18, my parents lost the business after a long struggle. It's probably close to a 10-year battle <laughs> to keep them and to figure out how to keep them. And we lost our house and our property and our business. And it was a very traumatic time for me because I was a I was so connected to that land, right? Like that was my that was my place and I lost it. Right. And so that corresponded with me being a freshman in undergrad and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life and I was very interested in history. So I ended up being a history major and for my senior thesis I really wanted to understand why my family was there, what had happened, you know, what were we a part of. I wanted to bring meaning to the, to the labor that my parents had put into that place for two decades. Yeah. So I um, did a thesis project that was an interviewing 32 current and former business owners in that region where I grew up. That's a lot of interviews. <laughs> yes, it was. I've always been an overachiever. My 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 one. Uh, I think it ended up being like 150 pages, which is pretty long for a thesis for an undergrad thesis. It's a long, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But during while I was doing one of these interviews, one of the interviewees lived in one of the old Cook homesteads because Cook Forest State Park is named after the Cook family, and he lived in one of the Cook homes. And it was a scrapbook that one of the family members had put together from the Cook Forest State Park campaign, which was a 20-year long battle to make Cook Forest State Park a park. And Cook Forest is special because it's the largest stand of old growth timber east of the Mississippi. And so I had this amazing source of hundreds of newspaper clippings. And that was the basis of my master's thesis, which looked at the Cook Forest State Park campaign. And while I was doing that, I found that almost nothing has been written about state parks. Everything is written about national parks or urban parks. So when I was looking into doing a PhD, I was like, well, there's a huge hole in the historical literature. And then I decided to make the project even bigger by coming to Canada and making a comparative topic because I wanted something super unwieldy and stress-inducing. Stress <laughs> so yeah, that was my pathway into becoming a park historian. That's a really deep personal connection to the history of parks. And then also, it's interesting to more people I talk to, how many people, a big part of how they decide on a, a research project is they find one really cool source that they want to extrapolate further from that. Mm -hmm. Today, we're talking about the history of parks, as you mentioned, national parks. And we're talking about the 2009 documentary series, The National Parks, America's Best Idea, which is directed by Ken Burns. I'm sure people no Ken Burns. Specifically, we're going to focus on the first episode, which is a two-hour documentary 
covering the years 1851 to 1890. So if you want to talk about other parts of the series, feel free to bring that in. For anyone who hasn't seen the documentary, let's give a little rundown of the sort of key topics of the documentary. Sure. The years 1851 to 1890 are intended to cover the establishment of the first national parks, specifically Yellowstone and Yosemite. Yo Yosemite in California, which is originally created as a sort of preserved space by the government in the 1860s and 1864, and Yellowstone National Park, which becomes the first national park, because Yosemite isn't originally a national park. So we get this story of the government creating these first preserved spaces. The documentary has a few also key themes that are sort of setting up the rest of the series. We see a narrative about parks being sort of key to American identity. We see a narrative about parks being this inherently democratic and egalitarian institution in American society. And we also see the documentary setting up what I assume is a, an ongoing major theme in the series, which is the conflict between public use and profit. And on the one hand, there's this sort of public good that some people are seeing in parks that is mm -hmm. served by not being for profit. And then there's other people who want to either bring profit into parks or perhaps go even further and just not even have national parks or, or se sell off the land for private use. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the themes we also get with in the, in the narratives about the founding of these two parks, Yellowstone and Yosemite, we get a lot of narratives about the sort of uh, quote-unquote discovery of the parks by white people. Yeah. And we see a lot of screen time from John Muir, who is, I think, probably the most famous park history historical figure. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe like there's an argument that Teddy Roosevelt counts as a more famous park historical figure, but John Muir is in almost half of the documentary, I think. And he is set up as an advocate for parks. Mm -hmm. Those those are some of the key themes, I think. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? No, I, yeah, I think the emphasis on John Muir is very important. I watched the document full documentary way back when it came out, so it's been a while. And it was also before I had a lot of my you know training in, in analyzing park history. And for this, I was able to watch the first and the second episode. And I will say that the second episode is also all about John Muir and kind of ends with his death. And I think this focus on John Muir is very telling about the angle that Ken Burns is approaching this history from. Definitely. We'll talk about John Muir a little bit later. Spend some good time on John Muir. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a Ken Burns documentary. And I feel like anybody who does any sort of American history topic at some point runs into a Ken Burns documentary in their field that is one of the defining public images of their field. And I think one of historians' key issues with Ken Burns documentaries, just on the whole, is that Ken Burns tends to pick a particular narrative that fits what he wants to tell and he isn't really interested in the historiography that doesn't relate to that narrative. So if there's historical work that challenges that narrative, it gets ignored instead of 
complicating the story or even presenting it as a as a debate or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see that that's probably true of this documentary as well. Absolutely. <laughs> One of the lessons this documentary teaches its viewers is that parks are deeply connected to American identity, that a relationship to the American landscape and by extension, the national park system is a big part of who Americans are. The scale and variety of nature is a big part of who Americans are and is something that is kind of uniquely American. Mm -hmm. Ironically, given that last point about uniqueness, national uniqueness, I think this is also a very strong narrative in Canada that a big part of what makes us a unique nation and people is our landscape and the vastness of Canada's nature. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why these are such powerful narratives in Canada and the United States? Sure. Well, in the United States, particularly in the beginning, it had a lot to do with proving their worth. So the United States was not the powerful nation that we think of today at this time, right? It was still, you know, on wobbly na- legs, you know, still very new and trying to prove itself on the international scene and particularly trying to prove itself in relation to Europe. And the national parks were a way of proving that they were just as good as Europe. You know, Europe might have these ancient towns and this amazing architecture and landscapes like the Alps, but we have these national parks that are just as good. So it has a lot to do with anxiety. And this anxiety also is connected to wanting to make profit. So I don't think that in either Canada or the United States, the national park systems can be separated from capitalism and the desire to make these useless lands useful, as Alfred Ronte talks about. So in a lot of ways, this is a narrative that's created. It's completely fabricated to increase American Canadian prestige and to make money. And Mm. it's important to remember that at the time that these first national parks were founded, very few people bought into the idea of them Mm -hmm. and people had to be convinced. And usually they were convinced with money. (laughs) Yeah. I think another piece of this as to why this is a powerful narrative is that in, a, in an era before white people are really paying attention to settler colonialism, this is kind of a non-controversial narrative mm-hmm. in the sense that trying to define your nation by any sort of values is tricky because there may be some citizens who don't agree with those values or in, interpret them differently. In some sense, it's easier to sort of focus on the landscape. I think this is becoming a more challenging argument to make in an era where Settler colonialism is increasingly under scrutiny, mm-hmm. and it's harder to see landscape as something that is this apolitical thing. Yeah. But I think this is part of why this narrative became set in an earlier time. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. One of the arguments that this documentary makes is that the national parks are this in- inherently democratic institution. They represent common enjoyment and ownership by the population as a whole. The documentary makes some comments about, you know, oh, in, in Europe at this time, land for leisure is privately owned by aristocrats, but in America is held by the common people, sort of on, on behalf of them by the government. Mm-hmm. And 
I think this is an important narrative about parks, and the narrative still exists, but certainly parks are not accessible to everyone in this period, and even today. As it's a really key part of the documentary, I think it's going to be a key part of our conversation. But, you know, even today, national parks are often not very accessible to lower-income communities. They're difficult to get to. It's expensive to get to them. They're expensive to stay in. The activities are often not cheap, etc. Can you talk a little bit about the history of this narrative? Mm-hmm. Yes, the, de- the, the documentary is very dedicated to this narrative, which I think is one of the quintessential American myths in, in totality. And the national parks are always a reflection of that, right? Mm-hmm. First of all, I want to I say how in the beginning they were extremely not egalitarian. Firstly, they pushed people out of these parks that were living in them, mm-hmm. primarily indigenous peoples. Also, some white settlers that had made their way there. And these people were not of well means. So they're pushing these people out of these parks. And the people who are able to visit are incredibly wealthy people. So the second episode in the documentary really illustrates this very well because it starts off with the early Yellowstone tourism and gives some figures for how much it costs to get there. Mm. So it was a $120 train ride to get to Yellowstone from New York City. So I looked that up, and that's um, well over $3,000 per person today just to get that's there. That's a ton of money. Yeah. That's a ton of money. And once you get there, you're, you stay at an expensive lodge, and then you take this grand tour. So everyone has the same experience. All of these wealthy people have the same experience. And one of the things that they talk about in the documentary is how the people there pretended that the water wasn't drinkable so that they could sell water to these visitors for 50 cents a bottle, <laughs> which today is not an insignificant amount to pay for bottled water. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the exact figure on that, but it's just an example of how this is absolutely a tourist trap. <laughs> and the only people in the first many decades where it's not until people start having you know family cars and family cars in number that you know more people are able to visit these national parks Mm -hmm. and so i think it's a it's very much a rich person's fantasy and one that's very tone deaf john muir can say oh everyone can have this experience or teddy roosevelt can say everyone can have this experience Sure, everyone can if they can, you know, take off work and, you know, get all this, these funds and feel comfortable in these spaces because we know these spaces weren't, weren't welcoming to most people. Mm-hmm. So it's, in my mind, a, a false narrative when we're thinking about the early national parks. And as you mentioned today, that it's still, you know, it's still very difficult to get to a national park, particularly if you don't live in the west of Canada or the United States. For instance, I have never been to an American national park, <laughs> even though I'm a park historian. I've been to Canadian national parks. But, you know, when I was growing up, I never dreamed of being able to go to a national park. There's something that was very far away and not accessible. And, you know, I was in Banff last month for one day. And, you know, it cost $20 to get in. 
And then the activities are so expensive, it's difficult to find a meal that's under $30. And we went did the Banff gondola, and that was $132 for two of us to do a round trip up down the mountain. That's a lot. That's a lot of money for an experience that is supposed to be democratic. You can only see this part of the park, <laughs> A, if you are well enough to hike up it, which, okay, there aren't that many people that have that level of fitness to hike up an actual mountain or you have to have $130 just you know, laying around. Right. And it's the type of thing that I don't think I'm going to do more than once probably in my life. And you also have to think about how you have to have the time to go. Yeah. So to visit a national park, you need a couple weeks really to be able to get a full experience to make it worth it, particularly if you're traveling from really far away. You also need to be able to reserve your space, your lodgings, usually a year or more in advance. So you have to have that kind of stability. And this is just the reality of national parks. Yeah. So the democratic nature of them is suspicious in my mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. They continue to be pretty inaccessible also if you don't have a car. Yes. I remember recently I was in Washington, D.C. I was like, I wonder what it would if there's like a train I could take to Shenandoah National Park or something yeah. like that to go check that out for a day. There's not really. You really do have to have a car. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's not happening. And I'm sure that's a it's not a unique experience by any means. It should be pretty telling that a lot of the institutions we think of from early park history that are very recognizable are like the Banff Springs Hotel and I forget what it's called, but there's a similar one at Lake Louise that's mm -hmm. a really fancy hotel yep. that is clearly, at the time and today, not something that a lot of people can afford. It's clearly something for, for upper-class people who want to have a fancy vacation. Absolutely. And like even just like getting out of your car and walking through the Banff Springs Hotel, you feel kind of like you're trespassing. You're like, yeah. I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the relationship between parks and settler colonialism in this documentary, mm -hmm. because I think this is a really important theme, and it sort of relates in some ways to this democratic theme as well. Mm -hmm. Indigenous people are not completely erased from the documentary. There is some depictions of indigenous people and settler colonialism and the violence of settler colonialism. For example, the reason that Euro-Americans, quote unquote, discover <laughs> Yosemite the reason they find out that the valley exists is that a California militia was trying to follow and kill indigenous people in the area. And they sort of followed them into the valley. And so that's a, a key indication of some of the violence of, of this mm -hmm. process. The movie also describes how the creation of Yellowstone National Park was accompanied by the eviction of the Shoshone people who lived within the park's boundaries. And we do get some little cutaway interviews with an indigenous employee of the park service who says you know we always knew these beautiful places were here white people didn't discover them they could have just asked us and we could have told them where they were mm -hmm. so those narratives appear in the documentary but i never got the impression watching them that these depictions of settler colonialism and its violence are intended to mount really like a challenge to this idea that parks are this sort of inherently democratic, positive institution. And the documentary almost seems to be separating these these pieces out, where if I were trying to read Ken Burns's mind, <laughs> it seems like 
he felt like he does have to cover this, but it doesn't really fit the narrative he's going to tell. And so he's going to have it, but then tell the story he wants to tell about egalitarianism anyway. Yes. Is this your impression as well? Absolutely. I think it's a major problem of the documentary. I mean, the thesis statement is the is the title, America's Best Idea. Mm-hmm. And anything that questions that or, or problematizes that in any way is just kind of brushed over. And it's very jarring, in my opinion, yeah. to have these stories and then no analysis is given. And we're just it's followed up immediately by some like white author, you know, rambling about how wonderful national parks are you know how egalitarian they are you know it's like immediately followed up by something that completely goes against what was just said yeah and i think that's a problem throughout the entire documentary they do have one indigenous commentator gerard baker who works for the national park service and they also have one black commenter who is sheldon johnson who also works for the national park service and to me they felt very tokenistic they are people who are representing an entire race (laughs) and they are people who are also employed by the national park service so they have that bias so no one who is critical or has a complex view of the park service or at least these individuals are not presented as having a complex view as represented and i think that that's really bad (laughs) and there's not very much attention given to what happens to these indigenous people after the parks are created for instance they talk about in yellowstone how the army ends up patrolling for poachers and looking after dumb tourists who are doing stupid things like sticking their heads in geysers (laughs) and uh First of all, that that shows that parks are very regulated spaces. They're policed spaces where appropriate behavior is codified. And Mm -hmm. that is not much different from other spaces in the United States. So when we're talking about freedom, etc., like, sure. (laughs) But another thing about the army is that they were patrolling for poachers and they're just called poachers in the documentary. And everyone can get behind, you know, patrolling for poachers. But what it fails to talk about is how the army was also patrolling for indigenous people (laughs) and making sure that they weren't, you know, hunting on their traditional hunting grounds. Because this fake border was just placed in the middle of their traditional homelands. And then, you know... (laughs) Obviously, they shouldn't respect that. And, you know, it's harder for them to to make a, a livelihood or to survive because they're cut off from their their sustenance, etc. Yeah. So I think that's another aspect that's not talked about at all. And yeah, it's it's very troublesome. <laughs> yeah. On that last point, I think that that has some real connections with recent events where, you know, a lot of conservation policies and anti-poaching policies like impinge on traditional indigenous rights to hunt or fish in a particular place. Mm -hmm. And often those policies create strict restrictions on indigenous people's access while also carving out exceptions for white corporations or that sort of thing. So this, when you said that, that made me think of the conflict over the the lobster fishery quite recently in, in Nova Scotia as well. So certainly that theme continues to be an important one. The documentary really celebrates white outdoorsmen like John Muir 
whose experience in the documentary is kind of this like empty land experience or, or narrative. Mm-hmm. The story around Yellowstone in particular in the documentary is striking because we do get this lead-in story about indigenous people being pursued with the purpose of killing them in the Yellowstone region. But then we don't really hear anything more about what happens to them at all after that. Mm -hmm. And the next time we hear about Yellowstone is like John Muir, you know, going for hikes and stuff. And and nobody else is around. And it feels like this, this weird theme about parks, like Ken Burns acknowledges indigenous people exist, but then it really sort of defaults to this empty land narrative. What I, it feels to me like is missing is the discussion about how rendering these parks empty was a process that white people undertook. It wasn't just empty. Yeah, this connects to the concept of wilderness, which the documentary subscribes to without question, despite having William Cronin, who wrote The Trouble with Wilderness as a commentator. Um, I found that very interesting how we don't have... Cronin really saying anything, at least in the first two episodes, that goes against the narrative. And I wonder, back in my mind, I was wondering, like, if they cut things out, you know, they pick and choose what Cronin said. I wondered that, too. I was like, (laughs) I mean, I'm not an environmental historian, but, you know, I've read a book by William Cronin. I was like, I'm kind of surprised that he's just sort of going along with all of this. Is this a situation where, you know, he did like eight hours of interviews and they've taken... (laughs) clips from like one hour of it or something yeah cut out the stuff they didn't like maybe i don't know yeah because like his famous book changes the land shows how you know indigenous people were modifying the land of new england way before uh new englanders got there right Mm -hmm. anyways (laughs) so this idea of wilderness is not questioned and wilderness is a is a settler colonial construct and at first wilderness was used to justify settling and to improving spaces and it's always a way of kind of creating a false narrative that the land is empty and the land needs to be improved and then this concept of wilderness is then kind of turned on its head in the with john muir and other preservationists but it's still being wielded as a tool for settler colonial takeover right because the parks are a settler colonial property creation they are are a type of property and it's a way of taking the land and ensuring that white people are in charge of it and they know what is best right and improving it because what they're saying is that you know in some ways this these spaces weren't good for agriculture etc for other you know more standard ways of settler colonial takeover But by creating them as national parks, they're giving them meaning and they're kind of ensuring that they're being going to be used and and owned by settler colonial governments. And to do this, again, you have to pretend that the land is empty or that the land should be emptied. So it all hinges on this kind of idea of wilderness. The documentary does not do a good job of talking about it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think one of the telling scenes of this non, not really interested in like probing settler colonialism in the documentary mm-hmm. is there's this bit where they're talking about this white man who has established an inn in Yellowstone and 
it's technically illegal. He's technically squatting on the land. Mm-hmm. Like, even though I think his inn had been there many years and the government eventually kicks him out and he fights this really extended court battle to stay and they, they don't allow him to stay. And, you know, I thought this was is an interesting story, but I was like, it's kind of odd to tell this story about this innkeeper, but then absolutely none of what happens to indigenous people in this sort of process of removing indigenous people from these parks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there any other major themes in the way that indigenous people relate to the national parks? I was wondering if there are some indigenous people who manage to earn livelihoods through the parks. Yeah, so I refer to this as peripheral communities. So these are largely in the West indigenous communities, but also white settler, usually poorer white settler communities that are pushed to the peripheries. Mm -hmm. And when you're on the periphery of a national park, you're often cut off from other forms of making a living. So other resource extractions like, you know, lumber industry or mining, etc. is pushed out of the region. And so that isn't an, an option. You're also at this this time forcing uh, indigenous people to assimilate or perish. So it's a very violent time in indigenous history, correct? Right. But they have a lot of agency and they figure out that they can you know, make money off of the tourism industry. I know more about this when it comes to Canadian national parks, particularly in Banff. For instance, there's the Banff Indian Days where the Nakota kind of perform (laughs) their indigenous culture for white visitors. And they've been doing this for decades. And you can be critical of that, but also good for them (laughs) for taking advantage of the system, right? You're presenting them with a system and they're they're making it work for themselves so right. they also have a lot of guides in the early years were indigenous people which i think is important to know so they would take you know wealthy white men who wanted to prove their manhood into the wilderness and make sure they didn't die <laughs> yeah. and that sort of thing and then in later years you know having gift shops and that sort of thing on the edge yeah So yes, indigenous people do take advantage of national parks. And then later in the 20th century, they start trying to have their own indigenous, like national parks that are managed by indigenous communities. So very complex history, but yes, they do take advantage of it. That's interesting. The guide theme that you mentioned, especially comes up a little bit in the documentary when John Muir takes a trip to Alaska. It was not a national park yet, but it's sort of setting up mm-hmm. the creation of a national park in Alaska. And he hires, I think, four indigenous guides to take him from the west coast of the United States up to Alaska and then show him around Alaska. And then there's this scene of him kind of like, in the, the narrative of the documentary is that he's sort of like discovering Alaska almost, which is very weird. Because I'm like... These indigenous people are the ones who showed you around. Or like, I always think of this as well when you hear about people climbing Mount Everest and things. Yes. And they, they talk about hiring Sherpas to tour them up the mountain. And then it's like, oh, and then this British man was the first to climb the mountain. And I'm like, it seems to me like <laughs> somebody else was the first person to climb that mountain. Exactly. Anyway, that's a little off topic. <laughs> 
So I think one of the other themes in the documentary that relates to this discussion about making a livelihood through the park is some of the discussion about the purpose of nature and the purpose of parks. And the documentary sets up this debate about whether or not parks should be put to some kind of financially profitable use. The land should be profitable. And this most extreme version of this is the park should not exist and and should be sold off to private landholders, mining companies, etc. The other narrative is that parks should be accessible in this sort of democratic interpretation, perhaps even this sort of spiritual experience in your connection to the land, and that incentives of profit sully that experience. And the documentary, it's sort of setting this up as like a two-sided debate, but it also seems to really lean in favor of that second side, which is sort of exemplified best through John Muir, who we'll talk about later. But the idea that the true park experience is you experience some inner personal value and spiritual value through visiting a park and that the profit incentive is somehow tarnishing the park experience. I thought this was funny. We get a lot of cutaways or like little primary source quotes from people trash talking Niagara Falls and, you know, saying stuff like, we don't want this to become another Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. Niagara Falls is, it's sort of this like, everyone there is out to make a buck off you. So that, that was kind of amusing to me. But I get this impression that this documentary is setting up this stark divide. And I suspect that this division historically is less stark than it seems. I also feel like it's presenting a pretty simplistic narrative of how people make livelihoods in relation to parks. And I think that, you know, it's all well and good. And and I think, you know, makes sense to criticize the railway corporations who are really trying to influence public policy in order to increase their profits through the national parks. Mm -hmm. That's a very different sort of criticism than something like, you know, indigenous people trying to make a livelihood through the parks or this innkeeper who's trying to just sort of get by. I feel like it's sort of simplistic or too simplistic to just say like, just don't make parks about money where like some people don't have a lot of other choices. What were your thoughts on this narrative? Would you agree with my comments or do you think these are like, the sort of stark divisions that they're presented in the documentary, I guess. Yeah, so the preservation versus conservation debate is one of like the key things that you learn as a as a young environmental historian. You're going to learn about John Muir as a preservationist and Gifford Pinchot representing the conservationists and you know, preservation for preservation's sake versus Pinchot saying the greatest good for the greatest number. And Pinchot is more about sustainable use of natural resources. He recognizes that, you know, regulations do need to be in place and that we do need to be careful. But he also recognizes that the society that the US is built on is based on using natural resources and growth and the kind of country that they want to build at that time. You can only do that using these pieces of land. To me, preservationists, there is no such thing as pure preservation, at least in the society that we live in. And sure, John Muir wanted that, but he never got it. Um, (laughs) And I don't think enough attention is put on how pivotal it was to convincing the government that these parks would make money Mm. that it was to preserving these pieces of land. It's also 
a human-centered idea still. You're not preserving these pieces of land because of ecology. We don't even have a, a firm grasp of ecology as a science, but at that time, um, we're not doing it because of the animals. We're still hunting predators in the national parks and deciding which animals are good and which are bad and which we which ones make us feel good and are cute so we want them around and which ones make us scared so we get rid of them, right? It's still very human-centered. Right. This is also simultaneous with the near eradication of the bison. Yeah. Yeah. So, and also even even today when you're thinking of preservation, it's still human-centered. Even, you know, you have a bird sanctuary and you make sure that there's a walking path going through it so that people can take pictures of it because that's where we find the value. You know, there's that I've I'm I'm forgetting the ecologist. He recently died who he calls for 50% of the world being set aside and like humans being taken out of it and 50% being for humans, right? And that idea of having spaces where humans don't go <laughs> is just like not accepted. And it also doesn't take into account indigenous people and it's it's very complex. So sure. to me, preservationists are not particularly realistic. Even in my own research for the Cook Forest Park campaign, the first 10 years is a preservation for preservation's sake campaign. And it's not until another dude comes in and says, no, we need to figure out how to make money off of this park and show people that we're going to make money off of this park, that the wheels start turning and it, Cook Forest eventually becomes a park. It's also very difficult to get average people behind parks because you're taking space from them and, you know, they want to know that they can make a livelihood off of these parks. Some parks are supported just because paved roads in the 20th century uh, will come with the park. And people are like, okay, yeah, I'd like a paved road. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's just so complex. And the idea that, you know, the Alberta campaign from the last couple of years has been parks are not for profit. And I've written on how I've, I think this is a white denial. It's a way of the people who can say that parks are not for profit are typically the people who have not relied on them for their livelihoods and have not felt the exclusionary effects of parks. Hmm. And to say that parks are not for profit like completely ignores reality <laughs> and also makes it so that we can't move forward to when a time there is... There are parks or something else. Like if parks are our best idea, where do we go from here? You know? Right, right. That all makes sense to me. I think also a big part of this, it's like a park purity narrative. Yeah. And I think a big part of this, especially in the period of the documentary, this is perhaps less strong today, although probably still an important factor, is that somebody like John Muir, a big part of the value of parks is part of his religious belief. Mm. And the documentary talks about how there's a, a certain generation and of Christians and interpretation of Christianity who interpret the parks as almost like a church where it's celebrating God's mm -hmm. incredible creation and to try to sully that with profit or think that you're better at managing that than... God is seen as like insulting to their religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's a key feature of this, 
this narrative in the in the late 19th century as well. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about settler colonialism and, and indigenous people's relationship to parks. I'd like to talk about the history of race in relation to parks more generally. The documentary does talk about indigenous people, obviously talks a lot about white people. There's almost no discussion of any other racialized groups at all. As you mentioned, there is a black employee of the Park Service interviewed for the documentary, but in terms of people in the historical record who are featured in the documentary, mm-hmm. it's basically just a small amount of indigenous people and a large amount of white people. Could you talk about how other racialized communities interacted with national parks in this period? Sure. So primarily as workers, if they were there at all. So this is so tied to class. Mm -hmm. And the majority of racialized Americans did not have the the money to get to these parks. And if they had gotten there, I don't like it it was just assumed that they couldn't get there because they didn't, you know, there was such a class divide and that was racialized. Right. Yeah. Um, And if they were there, they were largely workers. So they're going to be the cooks. There are a lot of Chinese cooks in Yosemite, for instance, who would cook for the wealthy visitors, you know, when they would go on a little camp hiking routes or what have you, they'd come along and they would they would be the service workers and the same for black people if they were in the national parks. But as visitors, <clears throat> not so much, <laughs> particularly in the 19th and early 20th century. And as Tina Liu and Meg Stanley have written, you know, Black visitors in Canada and Chinese visitors in Canada to Banff as well were restricted. They weren't able to use the hot springs. They were rallied against when they tried to just be tourists. So if they were able to get to these parks, then they faced a lot of backlash as well and segregation. You know, in the American South as well, when we get into the Jim Crow years, Great Smoky National Park had, you know, segregated areas for black people. There's a great book on the Jim Crow state parks called Landscapes of Exclusion by O'Brien that talks about how there were special parks for black people in the South because they weren't allowed to go to the white state parks. So the park systems would create black state parks. And it's still to this day, National parks are are white spaces. Carolyn Finney has a book called White Spaces, Black Faces, which really goes into this this phenomenon very well. She recounts the history of how black people have been excluded from outdoor places and how they have resisted and, you know, gone about it in different ways. But I think some state parks or national park service, I don't know the exact percentage. It's been a while since I've looked them up, but I know... Some park services still have 90% white visitors in places where that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, the whiteness of this wilderness idea and who does what kind of recreation is very complex and not really talked about in this documentary at all. Yeah. As you've mentioned with the statistics, parks continue to be racialized spaces. People may have come across, certainly I have come across, people may have come across white people complaining about Asian people using national parks, like racist comments about tourists from China and Japan. And so that that racism still exists today, for sure. Absolutely. And there's sort of an expectation that parks are for white people. Mm -hmm. I'd like to transition now and talk a little bit about gender and parks. Almost all of the historical figures 
featured in the documentary are men. We do see some archival photos of women at, at Yellowstone and Yosemite, but it's mostly men. And I also know that this is very close in time to you know, Teddy Roosevelt and his famous comments about masculinity being epitomized by the rugged outdoorsmen. You know, you go out and you hike and you hunt and mm-hmm. all that stuff. How did gender play into the history of parks and how people thought about how humans related to nature in this period? In the early years, as we see in the documentary in the first two episodes, the the presence of women or non-cis males is primarily as wealthy visitors. And they're going to be staying around the very fancy, civilized hotels and they may go out and visit you know nearby attractions and pose with them etc but for the most part women are relegated to kind of like the center of the tourism areas in the parks but the backcountry exploring etc is is almost primarily exclusively I should say the arena of the white man (laughs) and women are not welcome in these backcountry they're not expected to go there i'm sure there were exceptions and one one history is if you look at the climbing club for instance in canada perlin reichman has written a book about it she covers how women kind of fought their way into the the canadian climbing association but for the most part women are relegated to the to the camps and to the lodges and if we're not thinking about rich women then we're going to think again they're service workers if they're there at all you know they might be a cook or they might be a waitress or what have you mm-hmm. and women as a whole really do not become a big presence in parks until after the post-war era when we have the incoming you know cars have come into play and also an emphasis on the nuclear family and the idea of family vacations which are accessible to middle class families and that's when also coincides with increased rights for women and more acceptance of them doing you know more physical activities or you know a modernization I don't know if that's quite the word but of our, our concept of what women's roles are, right? You also see like the idea of recreation in general, outdoor recreation, I should say, evolves with this. So instead of, you know, backcountry camping and proving your manlyhood and shooting something or what have you, we see an increase in outdoor activities that the whole family can participate in, such as swimming. Swimming is the big one. Mm. Swimming wasn't as big of a thing <laughs> in, before World War One and Two. I was also going to ask you about class, but I think we kind of covered class earlier on as well. So I don't think we need to talk about that again. But I think through these discussions about race, especially settler colonialism, gender and class, I think we've shown that the parks are for everyone and this sort of democratic egalitarian institution narrative is problematic. <laughs> yes. Let's transition a bit and talk about John Muir. John Muir is, if such a thing as a protagonist in this documentary exists, he's definitely the protagonist. Gets more screen time far and away than anyone else in the documentary. He appears for, you know, just sort of like off the top of my head. I feel like he's in 45 minutes of the two-hour documentary. So like about half of it almost. And I don't know how much people know about John Muir, but 
eventually, you know, he's campaigning for the preservation of these spaces. But a lot of this is, documentary is about his experiences with nature as well. And there's some kind of funny anecdotes in here about, you know, John Muir going for hikes and he would do weird stuff to feel in touch with nature. Like he would climb trees during a storm so he could feel what a storm feels like from the tree's perspective or drinking out of a pine cone to feel more sequoia-ish. Which that was uh, that was the best that was one of my favorite parts of the documentary, I gotta say. But John Muir is I guess he's important to the history of parks in the sense that he campaigns for their existence, but he is also sort of, in some ways I think, instructing the audience about the true way you should be experiencing a park. What does centering Muir as the protagonist here do for how we think about park history and parks? What sort of narratives is this supporting and what perspective is it obscuring? John Muir was definitely a fascinating individual, an eccentric who I think was very lucky in his life. And he was very lucky because, you know, he was relatively wealthy. I think he married rich. He was a white man and he had the time (laughs) to go and sit in the woods and do his thing. He had support and using him as a figure out questioning these things threatens to undermine the ways that other people may experience nature or be able to experience nature. It's a it's a an ideal that is not available to most people, including most people at his time, particularly at his time. And the people who supported him were typically people who were just like him. You know, Theodore Roosevelt was a very wealthy man who had the time and the power to, you know, convene with nature and to do these moral things, um, moralistic, I should say. And I think it's a problem. John Muir's story is interesting and important, but it's a problem to equate it as the story of the national parks. Hmm. (laughs) They're not one in the same story, but they're often presented as such. And in recent years, John Muir has come under, you know, a lot of controversy because he was a white man who had very racist views of other individuals. He's, he is on record as saying terrible things about indigenous people, black people, Latino people, you name it. And he also looked down upon people who had to work for a living in these spaces, right? And Richard White talks about this and are you environmentalist or do you work for a living? And it's very easy for these people who don't have to rely on these spaces to be like, yeah, we just preserve them and it's fine. And that's what you should should do if you're a good person. And so we're coming back to all these ideas of race and class and how these are so intertwined in this idea of the national parks. And when we do a great man history because I think this is just a great man history it inevitably makes everyone else you know in the back and we don't we don't hear from them and I think part of the problem is that the sources are not there or they're very difficult to find it's very easy to write about John Muir (laughs) because we have so much correspondence we have so much of his writings we know what other people thought about him we have pictures of him we have all of this stuff and 
the other people in the background, such as the people who, indigenous people who are displaced or the Chinese people who were cooking at the campouts, we don't have their records. So I think that's also represents one of the difficulties of doing history. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think it's definitely easier for Ken Burns to default to the figure that we have a lot of source material that he can sort of flesh out the character for. Yeah. Which obviously tends to lead you to privileged people. Yes. And I think this is one of my <laughs> sort of big big thoughts about public history. This is my like big thought of the pot not the only hopefully there's more than one big thought <laughs> that I had in this podcast. But I think a lot of the time with things like documentaries, there's a certain parts of the audience for them. Certainly not everyone watching it, but there's certain types of audience viewers that makers are trying to cater to that kind of just want to be told the story they're already familiar with, with some additional details, but not necessarily have their overall narrative be challenged. Mm -hmm. And John Muir is great for that. In that. He obviously reinforces the narrative about Parks that Ken Burns wants to tell, but he's also a story that a lot of people have, they may not know a lot about John Muir, but they probably have, maybe have heard his name and know that he's somehow associated with the Parks. He's sort of this famous naturalist guy. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a, an easy way to draw in that audience, I guess. And there's a certain audience of people that want to hear about these famous historical figures. I did think it was funny. There's a, there's a real effort in the documentary to shoehorn in Abraham Lincoln. Yes. <laughs> because Abraham Lincoln signs the bill to create the preserved land that becomes Yosemite National Park in 1864. Mm -hmm. But so <laughs> there's this story beat where it's like, in the midst of the Civil War. <laughs> Yeah, Bill went up to his desk. It was Abraham Lincoln. So I don't know. It's kind of goofy. <laughs> and uh, there's also a lot of talk at the start of the documentary about Thomas Jefferson and how, you know, parks were before his time, but definitely Thomas Jefferson would have subscribed to this idea, which I thought was very silly. I was like, can... he doesn't have anything to do with this. We don't have to talk about Thomas Jefferson in every movie to do with American history. Absolutely. I think that illustrates how this national park story has also been created after the fact. This is a story that we created after John Muir died in a lot of ways because he didn't have a lot of support. And even though these parks were created, most of the, the politicians had no idea what they were doing. They didn't set aside any money. They didn't make any rules. There isn't even a National Park Service until 1916. In a lot of ways, John Muir is one of the only people <laughs> who can support this idea of national parks being an like, American identity type deal. And I don't think we talk about that enough, <laughs> how much of this has been constructed after the fact. I agree with that. I think this is a problem with public history generally. And probably academic history as well, is that it's very easy often to, because this was the outcome eventually that, you know, parks become this major institution and yeah. so forth. It's very easy to minimize the opposition to their current format as it existed historically. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to show that the sort of way they developed 
was always going to be the way they were going to develop or that they were going to be created at all. Yeah. So I think that that can be a, that can be a, a real challenge. And I think documentaries often struggle to portray that contingency. Changing gears a little bit, this documentary focuses on the American national parks, but your research, you know, about both Canada and the United States and the first Canadian national parks are created pretty close in time to these American national parks. You know, we get Banff, for example, in, in the 1880s. Yeah. How does the story compare in Canadian history? Are, are things pretty much the same or are there some key differences? There's a lot of similarities. Firstly, thinking about where the parks, the first parks were created and largely in the West, where a lot of settlers have not reached yet where provincial and state governments do not have full control of the lands yet, and where we have these sublime, spectacular landscapes that fit this idea of what is worth preserving at the time. So I think it's it's important to remember that in both countries, the ecological value of these landscapes is not necessarily at the forefront or even understood. Today, we have something like Grasslands National Park, right? But at the time, they would never have thought of of saving grasslands just to save them, right? Because there's nothing special about a grassland. It doesn't elicit the same emotional fervor. And we can go into why that is or if that is false, et cetera. But that's kind of the idea. So we have like similar landscapes. They're in the West. There's differences when it comes to governments, right? Because, you know. Canada is operating in a different procedural, but they're also going back and forth and comparing each other a lot, or I should say Canada is comparing themselves to the States a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, as usual, the U.S. is navel gazing. <laughs> <laughs> but one of, the, one of the key differences that a lot of scholars point out is that Canadian national parks were more commercial from the beginning, or maybe perhaps more honest about being commercial. J.B. Harkin, who was the first Canadian national park director, I don't know his exact title, you know, very quickly realized that they were going to have to make these parks make money. And so one key difference in the early national parks is that, you know, in the U.S., we don't have big town sites within the national parks. So, you know, we've got Banff, we've got Jasper, we even have something like Waska Sioux. And these are like pretty fairly sizable developments within national parks. And you don't see that as much as in the States. If people were, if those kind of spaces developed, they develop along the the periphery, aside from the big lodges and stuff. So that's one of the key differences in the early years. And as we go along, I would say that there's a lot of similarities. As I found with state and provincial parks, there's more of a an east-west similarity than a Canadian-American because as national parks spread east very slowly, there's still way more parks in the west. You'd run into the fact that there's already white people living on these parks, living on these lands. The lands are already privately owned or owned by the state or province. It gets more complicated erasing traces of human use. And there's a lot of racial things going on there as well. But of course, yeah. east and west. And then as we go further along, Canada has the north. And so 
that's a bit different as well as as Canada starts creating parks in the far north and that has implications for relations with indigenous peoples and indigenous stewardship that is a bit different than what happens in the states but by and large I would say that the documentary should really be like North America's best idea or Canada like I would argue and perhaps obviously because this is what I do but that each park service's story can't be told without the other in a lot of ways. So particularly if we're thinking at the policy level. That makes sense. I hadn't really thought about the North when watching this documentary, other than like, obviously John Muir goes to Alaska. Yeah. But I think that's actually a really useful comparison for people trying to think today about not to repeat ourselves too much, but this idea of the parks as these democratic things where it's, you know, imagine we have like a, a national park in Nunavut and you're like, okay, it's this democratic egalitarian institution. It's like, great. How am I going to go to Nunavut? You know? Exactly. Like, yeah. It, it's very easy to center indigenous stewardship when there is no one going to visit the park. <laughs> I'm always kind of critical of that. Not that it's not a positive step forward, but there's a reason why the ones that have have been able to incorporate indigenous stewardship more so are the ones in the north it's going to be a much longer process for those that are closer to centers of settler populations right the criticism is not that it's happening but the criticism is that it's not happening at the ones where they're making more money yeah yeah (laughs) so you've mentioned you've alluded to the the system of provincial and state parks in canada and the u.s a couple of times and this was the focus of, of your dissertation. And I'm curious how the state and provincial park systems compare to the national park systems. Mm-hmm. I called the introduction to my dissertation Middle Park Syndrome, which is a, a play on middle child syndrome, in that they've been ignored in the historiography. Uh, most historians have focused on national parks or the big urban parks, such as central or stanley but i would argue that there are way more state and provincial parks than there are national parks they receive significantly more visitors every year they are way more accessible to the average canadian or american citizen and thus they deserve more attention i think we put uh, we've bought into this idea of national parks being these institutions that are super super important but I don't think they're the, at the average person's level as important as we think they are. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I always want to point out is that the state park movement in the United States was a, a direct outgrowth of the National Park Service. So Stephen Mather was the first National Park Service director, and the National Park Service was founded in 1916 in the U.S. And soon after the Park Service was was created, they had just this pouring in of people with proposals for new national parks because everyone thought that their piece of land that they loved deserved to be a national park sure and mather was like most of these things they weren't as grand or as big they weren't like the idea of a national park that we had at that time the park service didn't have unlimited funds they, they couldn't take on every single piece of land. Right. But he recognized that most national parks were not accessible to Americans because they were far away. 
So he organized the National Conference on State Parks in 1921. And this was a huge conference where he invited folks from every single state, people who had power in the states, from politicians to conservationists, etc. And they met for every year for several decades. And the rallying cry that comes out of this conference is a state park every 25 miles. Because they recognize that the only way that parks are going to be accessible is if people can actually get to them. And so I would argue (laughs) that the state park movement and later the provincial park movement, which models itself quite a bit on the state parks in the U.S., is the actual democratic park movement. And one of the major things about state parks that makes them different is that Particularly in the beginning, they were looking for really cheap pieces of land to make state parks. Mm -hmm. The ecological value of them wasn't really important. So like in Pennsylvania, most of the earliest state parks were pieces of land that were burned over and clear cut by lumber companies and abandoned because they didn't want to pay the taxes on them. Um, (laughs) or they were similarly abandoned by mining companies. So these are pieces of land that were actually denuded and needed to be like replanted. But what was important was that they were cheap. (laughs) And yeah, so the state park idea just lended to a much more flexible idea of what a park could be. And that changes through time. The state park boom is in the 60s and 70s where just like thousands of parks are created in the, at the state and provincial level. And then the 80s hit and they realize, oh, they aren't paying for themselves. <laughs> and then they start to try to offload them. And then we get into this pattern of, you know, trying to offload parks. So when we have Alberta a couple years ago trying to get offload some of their provincial parks, that wasn't the first time Alberta has tried to do that. Like right. it's a it's a it's a cycle in a lot of state and provincial governments because there was this ideal of recreation and they created all of these parks and then they didn't realize that they weren't going to be able to pay for these parks. So that's kind of like flexibility, more democratic. I could talk for a lot longer, but I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll stop now. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting though, that they're the, in some ways the democratic park that just kind of a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to. I also thought it was interesting, your comments about how the parks are, like artificially built up. And it made me think about how, I think this often gets missed when talking about national parks as well, is that the quote unquote nature in the parks is very managed, right? Oh yeah. It's not this sort of pure nature experience. Park management actually is a pretty big mm-hmm. industry. And so the, it's sort of like, it's like a nature themed playground in some ways. Yes. Uh, that's probably That's probably a little too far to say that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to mention about the documentary or park history that we haven't already covered? Park history is incredibly complex. And this is this documentary is good on a number of levels. It's a good introduction to these topics. But you have to dig further to get to the actual, like, what's actually going on. And I just encourage people to have that curiosity. There's a lot of great work out there that's going to illuminate these missing aspects of the documentary. Yeah. Okay, so what was your favorite thing about the documentary? And if you could change something about the documentary, what would you like to change? My favorite thing about the documentary is just that... It is emotionally compelling. And I think Ken Burns does know what he's doing. 
there's a reason he's very popular. And, you know, I grew up as a millennial who watched PBS a lot as a kid. And, you know, I, I watched a lot of Ken Burns documentaries and I lot, watched a lot of Ken Burns copycats. And it's a well done documentary that is emotionally compelling and keeps your interest, even though it's incredibly long. The whole doc- National Parks is like over 12 hours, I think, if you're going to sit down. Yes. And I, I originally was like, I'm going to watch the whole thing before we, we record. And then I got through the first two and I was like, I don't have time for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a commitment. And I, I wonder how many people are still watching the documentary. I was looking at, I purchased it on YouTube. Because I was like, well, you know, I'm a park historian. I might as well own it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but like, if you look at the views, like it's been on YouTube to purchase, but it only has like 150 views, you know? Hmm. So anyways, I don't know where I'm going with that. But <laughs> I like it because in a lot of ways, it is a good documentary. What I would change about it is I just wish Ken Burns was a bit braver and brought in people who were critical even the people that he has commenting, like Alfred Runta or William Cronin or et cetera. I know they've written things where they have been more critical of the National Park idea. Yeah. And there's really a lot of missed opportunities. And it does not take away from the history of the National Parks to complicate it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a problem with a lot of histories that we're presenting to the public that we kind of like don't think people can handle it or what i don't know i don't know but i just wish that he would take more chances and yeah i saw that there's a new national parks documentary that's hosted by obama on netflix Mm -hmm. i haven't seen it yet but i'm wondering how it compares maybe you should have someone else on this show (laughs) yeah i'll be interested i i mean i i did think of suggesting that i don't think it's about the history of the parks yeah i wasn't sure i saw megan kate nelson a few other historians doing some threads about it on twitter that i haven't had time to check out yet but so it has the the attention of some park historians but it's just like i think this is one of the pivotal things like if people are going to encounter national park history this is one of particularly in the last decade or so this is the way they're going to do it mm-hmm. and that means it had a lot of responsibility that it doesn't entirely live up to for sure i mean ken burns the view count on youtube may not be super high but i think ken burns documentaries kind of stick around mm-hmm. as important definitive representations to the public and you know i think a lot of people will probably this documentary comes on on pbs on a sunday afternoon put it on in a way that Maybe not all other documentaries, just because this has the Ken Burns name on it. You know, I think of the Civil War documentary, that's 25 or 30 years old at this point, Mm -hmm. and people still watch that, even though at this point the historiography in it, I mean, the historiography in it already (laughs) was not the most up-to-date. That's a a topic for a different episode, but (laughs) people are still watching it. And so I think it does have a lasting impact. You know, as you were making that comment, I feel like, a lot of a lot of this, and this is not surprising given the narrative about the documentary, but it feels like it's just sort of a stand-in for America as a whole, isn't it? It feels like Ken Burns is presenting this narrative about America is this egalitarian, democratic country as exemplified by the national parks. Mm-hmm. And I think most historians would be like, well, if you look a little closer, this is, this is a problematic narrative. <laughs> 
And you haven't, you've sort of acknowledged settler colonialism, but not really integrated it into that bigger interpretation. Anyway, it's just sort of a, a thought <laughs> I had as you were saying that. But on the lighter side, my favorite part of the documentary was the theme song and the little fiddle music that yeah. stuck in my head for Very good. days straight. <laughs> Jessica, it's been really interesting talking to yeah. you about this documentary a second time. <laughs> Would you please share... Any social media pages or, or projects that you're working on with the listeners if they'd like to follow you? Sure. Um, well, I'm very active on Twitter. You can follow me at Jessica M. DeWitt. Also, my Instagram is public. Pretty active on there, too. J. Marie DeWitt. I've got a website that's still under construction. That's JessicaMDeWitt.com. Goal is to finish it by October, which will be two years since I started it, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things you can always put off. Yeah. I don't have a website. <laughs> and then, yeah, I'm as editor-in-chief of Network in Canadian History and Environment. If people are interested in environmental history as a whole, check us out at niche-canada.org or at niche underscore Canada on Twitter. And we're kind of a hub for all things environmental history. And yeah, you can check me out there too. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. That's all for today's interview. Thank you for listening, and a big thanks to Jessica for joining me. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we talked about on this episode, I've included a pair of book recommendations in the show's description. And if you'd like to see some historical images of the national parks, check out our Facebook and Instagram pages. If you're enjoying the show, it really helps me out if you share it with someone you know that you think would like it. For a podcast of this size, telling a friend makes a huge difference for growing the audience. If you'd like to leave a review for the show, that's also a big help. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode, so leave me a comment on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. Feel free to send me suggestions for future topics, too. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Nethkaria. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history. <laughs> <laughs>